0: good morning whitewater so good to be here so good here to, so good to be here with you if you're new want to make sure you know this is a place you can belong before you believe and as you believe as you're learning maybe to explore faith in jesus um, our goal is to help every person who walks through the doors to take that next step in a flourishing life with god um, it doesn't matter where you come from or your background um, everybody is on a spiritual journey so I want to jump right into the text because uh, we got, I think, some really important things to talk about as a community. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2. This is a, actually a pretty famous and very important, um, a really important theological teaching from Paul. And uh, while you guys are turning there in your Bibles, I just, I wanted to remark, uh, last week Michael spoke and he called me up and said, George, in the first service, I think I killed somebody. Because uh, in the first service, um, uh, a friend who gave me per- permission to talk about this, Bill, uh, fell over and they thought he had a stroke. He was okay. He just uh, was dehydrated apparently. And he was at church today. He was all right. So I get to tell Michael who's gone this week when he gets back. I'll wait till he gets back. I was like, you didn't kill anybody. It's all good. <laughs> so, um, uh, is uh, like i said it 's so fun to be here, but I want to jump right into the text. Um, if you would jump into verse one of chapter two, it says this: so if our shared life in the king who 's the king in this day and age, when people talked about the king, they meant Caesar, but paul who 's in prison he 's in chains for his faith who 's he talking about our king jesus so if you if our shared life in the King Jesus brings you Any comfort, if love still has the power to make you cheerful, if we really do have a partnership in the spirit, if your heart's are at all moved with affection and sympathy then make my joy complete as your spiritual father he's writing to the the church in Philippi he says make my joy complete as I'm sitting here in chains as I'm confined and limited not able to do the things that I feel born to do called to do make my joy complete by doing this one thing bring your thinking into line with one another What's, what's Paul saying there? Like, this is, a, this is a springboard for this whole passage. Bring your thinking into line with one another. Does that mean everybody think exactly the same thing? Everybody be exactly the same way? Sameness? No. What Paul is talking about is bring your uh, thinking into unity. Into unity with one another. This is one of the most important teachings in scripture for the church. I think this is one of the most important teachings for the world that we live in. Have any of you noticed that we live in a polarized and dividing time? Especially as we're seeing uh, the you know kind of the final stretch toward uh, political elections, you might see some um, polarization politically. We see it religiously in our world, socially, economically, where people are are are, are kind of scared and they they, they want to be a part of something so they're not alone. And and what you what we see is when there's polarizing times, um, and this is Christians, this is anybody on our, on our world. There's a tendency, a temptation to just run to your corner with the people you identify with and agree with or at least you want to have them think that you agree and identify with them because if you don't then you're out so I have a tribe so I'll run to my tribe over here and then somebody else runs to their tribe over here and everybody's running to their corner and dividing more and more whether it's on social media, on people's you know, Facebook pages, whatever, like opinions and lines are being drawn, and and it's us against them, and it's this tribe versus that tribe. And Paul living in a, in a world where there was a lot of division, and in a church that he churches that he's planted all throughout the Mediterranean, he's trying to teach the, the church of Jesus Christ. That Jesus came to unite people and build a bridge between God and others and to be a community, a family with unity in diversity. Not allowing our diversities and our different, our different thoughts and our different actions and our different ways of living to, to, to cause division, but to bring unity. Do you, like imagine what a church could do in their community if they just got unity in diversity right. There's a world of people watching. I think there's people that are aching to come out of their tribal, you know, corners and unite around something. And I think the best thing to unite around that God has given us is his son, Jesus. So what is the church supposed to look like? Paul's writing to a specific church in Philippi. He writes letters like this to churches in Galatia, in Corinth, and in Rome, other places in the Mediterranean, so how does the church of Jesus Christ maintain unity within diversity? How do they do what, what Paul's asking them to do? Bring your thinking, bring your minds, your hearts, bring your lives into unity with one another. Um, and I don't know about you, I grew up in a, I grew up in a church where, uh, as a kid where unity was hard. Anybody grew up in a church as a kid? All right, a few of us. Um, At Whitewater, like 50, 60% of the people are new to church or not even Christians yet. And I think that's wonderful. How many of you guys grew up in a family where unity was hard at times? Whether at Thanksgiving or maybe just at the breakfast table? Unity is, is hard, but if we get it right, I think we can mirror the the beauty and the goodness of God, the, that God wants in the world, to humanity. So how do we do this? What does it look like? Um, uh, just for some historical context, the churches, whether Galatia, Corinth, Rome, Philippi, uh, the, the churches um, that Paul were, was writing to... Um, there are, there are historians that think there were some general ideas about what these churches looked like. Most of them, many of them, were um, house churches at the time because they didn't have property in this, at this time in the Roman um, Empire. And so there were these house churches, and these house churches were based on what were called an oikos or a household. And it's different than what we think of as like the nuclear family. If you think of like, I don't know, The Simpsons or Family Guy or whatever your family show is, some people were like, What? That's a terrible example. Um, I'll try to think. The Brady Bunch, I don't know. That's like two. Maybe that's a better example of oikos. But an oikos was its business, its family, its connection. And often be, it could be 30 to 70 people that are part of a household, an oikos in Greek culture. And so when Paul is writing to churches, these, this is a scattered church in, in Philippi, specifically the Philippians. And um, specifically, the area around Philippi. And and there's some historians, there's a a British scholar who concluded this, um, that um, in each household, there would probably be a mix of people like this. A craft worker in, in whose home that everybody met, kind of the business owner the, the the father or mother of the whole household, and you would have women and men in the, in Greek culture that would have different businesses um, and be the household leaders so you, they would also you know usually have a, a, a wife, children, uh, a couple of male slaves, female slaves. Um, Uh, a dependent relative, like a grandma, grandpa, cousin, uncle, aunt, who are living on the property. You'd uh, often have tenants, people renting uh, a room or renting, you know, a part of the household. Um, there would also be, um, families that were connected to theirs with their own slaves and their own dependents also living on that same place. Maybe even the ones renting rooms would also have slaves. This is the world they lived in. Um, it also, uh, there would also usually at the church when they'd have church gatherings, there'd be a couple slaves from like another household that would come over, and their the the owner or the leader of their household didn't go to that church, but these slaves would come to the church and and celebrate the the word of God and and take communion together um, as a church. They would have um, you'd often have um, some freed slaves who were kind of some of them were uh, freed or they were working toward their freedom. Maybe they had. Um, had some kind of financial crisis and so they had sold themselves into slavery to pay that off and then you could also have fr- slaves who weren't free and, um, and had less rights some slaves would have like rights of citizenship, some wouldn't um, and then you'd often in these households, these church households there'd be homeless people who were just looking for a home or um, people who, st- who um, weren't mentally even capable of taking care of themselves they were a household and this was where the church would gather. Um, another few things to know about it is that often there could be people who um, were of mixed uh, racial and ethnic background, Jewish and Gentile. There were people um, who had uh, backgrounds of very different backgrounds. You'd even have uh, often like in Philippi and Corinth and some of these areas, they have um, even enslaved prostitutes who would visit the church who were working like as a temple prostitute for another religion who were becoming Christian. But their job and and really like their status in society was that. I mean, think, think about the diversity of the people, of these churches that Paul is writing to. We like, sometimes we just kind of think within our own culture and our own like homogenous, everything the same um, type of culture, but it was so diverse. And Paul is teaching this church to be unified. Do you think a church with all these kinds of people, with all these so, different social scales, racial scale, um, moral s- scale of life, some people living this way, some people living this way. Do you think that they had any tensions as a community? Do you think that they ever had uh, disagreement? Do you, do you think that this, the, these churches agreed on everything together? The free slaves and the slave slaves and the, the masters and the, all agreed on everything. Paul is writing to such a diversity and yet he calls them to unity with diversity. Uh, he, he, I think it's so interesting he, in the middle of this tension, he teaches them how to be a unified church. How? Now, I just want to give an illustration. This is helpful for me. Maybe it'll be helpful for you. I think there's kind of three ways that we can look at church, and there's three ways to eat an, a salad. How many of you guys uh, hate salad? Anybody, salad haters in here? It's okay. Most people won't judge you, just a few, and I'll work on them during this sermon to not judge you. So it'll be great. Um, so we've got salad haters. That's the first kind. They hate salad. Some people, like, they're not into church, and they don't go to church, um, unless, like, a relative drags them. And you're like, yeah, that's me. I was dragged here today. Any of, any of you here? I'm glad you're here. It's great. Um, I told them to drag you here. Um, but the other two ways of eating a salad actually involve salad eaters. And uh, so here's the, f- the first way. Um, this is kind of the, 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 the weird way, the, 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 an unbiblical way, but this is, the, uh, this is the way some people will eat their salad. They like their salads segregated. All the parts need to be separate. For them, this is how you eat a salad. Um, and this is an art or a science, uh, depending on who you are. Um, how many of you guys like the lettuce part of salad? which for some people would say it makes it a salad. A few people like the actual salad part, like these the leafy part. I think, what is this? Ice, iceberg lettuce or something, right? This isn't like the healthy, healthy, like, you know, kale and chard, like my wife likes to give me and It's like, oh, but I know it's healthy. Some, some of you like this. Um, uh, but it's got to be separate. And then we have uh, people, how many of you guys like uh, ham? and meat in the salad. Like that's the most important part of the salad for you is the meat, ham, chicken, we can put that. I would put bacon in its own category. (laughs) Have you guys bacon people? Like, yes. Because someone would say like, hey, would you like meat on your salad? You say yes, but you'd also say and bacon. (laughs) Correct? (laughs) And bacon. How many cheese people? You like cheese? Got the cheese parts. Tomatoes. How many of you guys like tomatoes? We got some tomato people. How many of you hate tomatoes? It's like you, my sister used to throw them. She hated tomatoes. Okay. Um, And so you pick and you choose and this is what it is. But then in America, this is, this is the, this is kind of the the functional way of eating. We'll we'll take salad dressing and we'll have all the salad segregated into its parts. And then uh, the the American, you know, uh, dressing of choice probably is ranch. But in my family, I'm going super American. My dad, my father loves blue cheese. Like, he loves blue cheese. One time, he was at a restaurant. This was recent. And they, had, they gave him a salad. He didn't want to be eating a salad, but he was like, I need to because I'm on this diet. So he got this salad, and they had blue cheese that he had asked for, but it came as, like, actual crumbled blue cheese. And he's like, where's my blue, blue cheese salad dressing? And he was like, I'm sending this back. My mom's like, no, 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 I think that's the blue cheese. He's like, that is not blue cheese. And she's like, try it. And he took a bite. He was about to send it back. And he was like, oh, this is glorious. <laughs> this is the most like stinky, like pungent, I mean, I was like, I was moving my chair away. Are, you, are there any blue cheese people in here? Oh, wow, you guys, you know, usually that's a sign that your taste buds are dying. So that's, um, <laughs> it's amazing. And normally what, what happens is, is you, you, in America we, we just douse the whole thing and like this is, this is one way of eating your salad with plenty of blue cheese okay and what happens is you have all the parts separated because there's good parts and there's bad parts that need to be separated and then everything tastes the same because you douse it in whatever stuff you put on there right whatever dressing it is now there's another form of um salad eating it's not segregated it's mixed salad so here um is a salad. This salad has green cabbage, romaine lettuce, red cabbage, kale, carrots, green onions, uncured bacon, mm, cheddar cheese with it, white meat, grilled chicken. It makes me question whether it's real chicken, but it's important because it's it's meat-like. And um, this is, I'm I'm showing you guys the godly way, the biblical way of eating salad, okay? And uh, so you pour this stuff in there. There's a few bags of something in there. That's all right. You know, what is that? Oh, yeah, it's the meat. That's important. Let's see if I can get that open. Meat-like, at least. I don't know if it really is meat. And then, um, Pete, this is what I'm told. People who are real, they're like godly, biblical salad eaters, is they put just a little bit of olive oil. And if they're real picky, they put in a little bit of vinegar. Now, I'm just going to go with olive oil. And they anoint... And they baptize, and what do you do with this? Mmm, 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 it's all good, mixing this stuff together, and what they tell me is that when you mix it all together, like so, that all the flavors with, with just a little bit of olive oil, maybe a little bit of vinegar, all the flavors mixed together, and all the different pieces and all of the different parts of the salad are mixed in a salad, and it's, it brings out the flavor. One, you have homogeneous, separate, segregated salad that all tastes the same because it's really like a salad pie, right? And then you have the mix. And so it is with church. Paul is saying you are designed to be a mixed salad with part. Some Some of you aren't going to like each other. Some of the tomatoes aren't going to like the kale, you know, some of the bacon bits aren't going to like the... Uh, well you know might represent some of the Jewish uh, anti-Jewish flavor that was happening in the church like an anti-Gentile there were fights going on like no bacon yes bacon and you guys are like they were having that fight that makes no sense but um, religiously they were having some of those fights and and Paul's saying it all mixes together you have um leaders in the church who own a business, you have freed slaves, non- non-freed slaves, you have temple prostitutes, all coming together. How do we live, how do we have a church that's like this? I'm going to teach the rest of this passage, and then I'm going to get really practical, okay? So um, in this passage, Paul says, here's how you do it. Here's how you do it in verse two. Here's how you begin to live a church that's unified in diversity. Hold on to the same love. Bring your innermost lives into harmony. Fix your minds on the same object. You, like, are you playing, a, are you playing, all playing the same game? Or are you all just running around crazy doing your own thing? Are you polarizing? Are you, is it us versus them? Is it tribal or is it one tribe of many tribes? One family of many families that are together. They're one, they're unified around the same object. Verse three, never act out of selfish ambition or vanity. Never act out of selfish ambition or vanity. Instead, regard everybody else as your superior. That's interesting. What does he mean by that? And then look after each other's best interests, not your own. So I think verse 3 and 4 are defined by the following verses, 5 through 11. Check this out. This is is how you should think among yourself. This is your mindset. This should be your attitude with the mind that you have because you belong to the Messiah, to Christ, to the Lord Jesus. So you have a new mind that's being renewed in Jesus. And here's, if you want to think like Jesus, here's how you think like Jesus. And he said this, he says this in verse 6. Jesus is who he's talking about, who though in in God's form did not regard his equality with God as something he ought to exploit or take advantage of. He's saying that Jesus is in heaven and equal with God and was before the world. This is the implication. And that Jesus didn't consider that something to just hold for himself, to take advantage of or or exploit or hold over people who are of lower status or don't have as much as him. And I mean, being equal with God, there's not much higher than that, right? So who, though in God's form, did not regard the equality with God as something that he ought to exploit instead... You might want to underline this. He emptied himself. He poured himself out and received the form of a slave. So all of a sudden you see like what Paul's doing here. Paul's saying so, some of you like might be masters in your churches and you might have power. Well, what did, what did Jesus do who was like the leader of the, if there's a master out there, Jesus was it. What did he do with his power? He emptied himself, poured himself out and became like a slave. A servant to his servants. Isn't that amazing? And he received the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of humans. He's God born into humanity and then having human appearance. He underlined this humbled himself and became obedient even unto death. Yes, the death of the cross, the death of a sinner, the death of a criminal. He dies on a cross for humanity. There's, there's like nothing that looks more like defeat, more like losing than dying on a cross and claiming to be king. But K- King Jesus shows his kingship by leaving the palace of heaven and becoming like a slave and ultimately dying for all the other slaves and servants so they could be lifted to become kings and queens in the kingdom of God. Isn't that amazing? He humbled himself. Verse nine, and so God was greatly exalted, uh, has greatly exalted him, and to him in his favor uh, has given the name which is above all names, that now at the name of Jesus, every knee within heaven shall bow, on earth too, and under earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus the Messiah The Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And his act of servanthood was an act of glory. His act of self-giving, limiting love and pouring out his love, self-sacrificial love for the world was the sign of his kingship. And so what is this passage all about? It's about the servanthood of Christ. What does it mean when he says never act out of selfish ambition? Don't try to exploit your power and exploit your wealth, exploit what you have for yourself. Instead, regard everybody else as your superior. He's saying be like Christ who, who considered himself like a slave and treated everybody else like they were his superior. Do you see what, do you see what this is saying? Paul is saying if you're going to have unity, you have to regard everybody else as if you're the servant and they're the master. Hey, masters who have slaves, you wanna know about the gospel and you wanna know how the gospel's gonna, is gonna undermine the institution of slavery? Think about being in, in a world that Paul knew was wrong with all kinds of slavery and all kinds of terrible stuff. Where do you start? And he starts with this subversive gospel that subverts power into love. Isn't that amazing? Treat them like the masters. Treat your servants like they're your master. Servants treat your masters like you're like you're serving the Lord. Love each other. Look after each other's best interests. Don't serve your own interests. Serve their interests. That means that that you you. We, we begin to submit ourselves, let go of our agenda and serve other people's agenda? What would happen in a community of faith if we all laid down our own agendas and said, I'm going to serve their agenda? That person that I'm not sure I like, that person I'm not sure I agree with, that person that seems so different than me, my job isn't, gonna, isn't to go and tell them I disagree and dislike and I'm different than you. My job is to find out how I can serve them. What happens in a community if we learn to serve people who have different political ideologies, different religious backgrounds, different maybe faith expressions, different opinions theologically than us? And my job is to find out how to serve them. Because do you think that Jesus agreed with all the theological, political, and religious beliefs of his disciples? If his job was just to come and tell people what he disagreed with, it would have been over. He came to serve. Amen. And this kind of community shows the world what real leadership is, what real love is. So I want to give a well, I, I mention a few other things, a community that says, I'm gonna set down my rights and my liberty, and my freedom, and use those to serve other people. And I'm gonna drop my agenda to serve other people. That kind of church that transcends differences. It appreciates and sees value in other perspectives it uh, is able to live life together and we're able to learn from one another some of the best learning for me is when I when I listen to someone I might even completely or vehemently disagree with God teaches me through them he challenges my idolatry my bad thinking even through them I wanna give you guys something very practical. How do we live this out in a very practical way? How do we have unity? And here's an equation I want you to write out. This has been helpful for me and this is something I think is helpful for our church. You wanna know how we live a community of unity and diversity? Here's the equation. Unity, it's in your notes, equals liberty plus limits plus love. Let me say that again. Unity equals liberty plus limits plus love. I'm just going to break those down, and then we're going to do something that, that demonstrates unity as a church, okay? And if you're new here, you're like, I'm not part of this church. Well, the way we look at church is we look at you like, well, you, you're, you're a brother or a potential brother or sister, so you're invited, okay? So here's how we'll break this down. Unity equals liberty plus limits plus love. Um, another way of breaking this down would be to say, in essentials, the essentials, we have unity. We know What's worth fighting for and dying for? In non-essentials, we have liberty. We give freedom for difference of opinion, a difference of of living, difference of being. So in essentials, we have unity. In non-essentials, we have liberty. In anti-essentials, we have limits. Anti-essentials, if someone's living in complete contrast to what we said are essential, there might be some limits. And then finally, in everything, we have love. In everything, we have love. In essentials, we have unity. Non-essentials, liberty. In anti-essentials, limits sometimes. In everything, we have love. So the first thing we have to get right is answer the unity question. What is essential? What is worth giving my life? Or what are we gathering around? Why are we here? What organizes all of this? The unity question. And... Um, it's about harmony, moving toward the same goal, um, and I just love how Paul says, "Fix your mind on the same object." So the question is, what is the what unifies us? What's the center? What is the center? Now um, I've heard it said that you know whenever you have two pastors gathered, you've got three opinions. Whenever you have two Bedlians gathered, you've got four opinions. It's just how it is. I'm a Bedlian. It's my family. I went to a church where unity was really far and few between. So we had people fighting over like what color the carpet should be at times, like older folks that had grown up. And they'd been taught like this is unity and diversity and we're going to fight over things. And they'd like, literally there was a fist fight one time between two old guys who couldn't throw a good punch, but, <laughs> but they were still punching each other. And I, I was like, this doesn't seem to be what Paul is getting at. So unity is really hard. And so there's a lot of times division in church, and it's like, what do we have to offer the world if we can't be unified? The other problem is sometimes churches unify, and people unify around the wrong things. There are churches that their center, their unifying principle is tradition. We've always done it this way, and we'll never do it any other way. And that's that's what we're unified around. Um, if you look at the Old Testament, the Tower of Babel, you guys know about the humans who said, we're going to build our, our own uh, city, and we're going to build a, a building up to the heavens, and we don't need you, God. And they, they were unified. So unity in itself isn't, isn't good. They were unified against God and prideful. There's people who, uh, there's churches that will be unified around programs, and th- th- all the energy goes toward developing the programs instead of developing people. Um, there's uh, churches that are centered on money and finances. And the question's always like, how much will it cost? Not how many will it reach? Not how many will it love? How much will it cost? Uh, there's so many things that we can get centered on and unified around that aren't it. And, and, and there's even the worst examples of this are like in the 1920s and 30s. Hitler was better at unifying the, the, the German church and other European churches around hatred, bigotry, and racism than the pastors in Germany were at uniting the Christians around Jesus. In the 90s, in in Rwanda when there was the genocide, um, what became obvious was that the genocide, uh, the leaders that wanted the genocide were better at unifying Christians around hatred, bigotry, and racism than the pastors were at unifying the Christians. And here's how they know, 90% of the country identified as Christian before the genocide. How do you have a country that 90% say that they're Christians, commit genocide and kill over a million people in 100 days? What they realize is we've become better at making disciples of our tribe and our politics and our politicians than we are at following, making disciples of Jesus. And so the, the unity question is so important. And for us at Whitewater, we are centered and unified on Jesus. And there's some other essentials I could talk about, but the essential essential is Jesus. All of the, what we think, how do we understand the ethics of our world? And as a Christian, what do my ethics begin looking like? You know, like my morals, my, my social ethics, my sexual ethics. I look to Jesus for that. I look to Jesus for that. He's the one who models that. How do do we model just loving people and and our social dynamics? I look to Jesus for that. Um, Religiously, we look to Jesus for that. Jesus is the center. Jesus introduces us how to receive love from the Father, how to live a life led by the Spirit, how to have a flourishing life in a broken world. We look to Jesus, amen? And... um, that's the that unity question is so important. Uh, he, he says, "Have the mind of Christ," and that's the center. Liberty, um, liberty is an important one. I I'm, want to make sure I've got a little bit of time left, so I'll, I'll hit these. Liberty is really important, and it's the idea of freedom, of choice, and conscience. Um, I, I didn't share this with the the last. Um, gathering, but I, I think it might be worth saying. There was a, a character in history, a, a, a leader in history named Roger Williams. This is him. Um, he uh, actually founded Rhode Island. And uh, his story is really interesting. He's the first leader that founded an, uh, and organized a government, Rhode Island, around what he called soul liberty or conscience Uh, liberty of conscience so basically his story was he believed that you shouldn't force somebody to believe something or ascribe to something through the state or even the church like the church shouldn't make you believe what you don't want to believe he also was the first one who drew a line between state and church but for for something I think is really important for us to learn from him he was kicked out of the Puritan Massachusetts colony for belief for believing that you shouldn't violate people's personal conscience they have liberty they can think differently than each other that diversity of thinking was good he embraced this and uh, so he was kicked out. He uh, found refuge in the, in the winter from uh, some in, an Indian tribe. He learned their language. He's one of the first missional thinkers in America. He learned the language. He, told, he also got kicked out because he told the Puritans that you owe the Indians money because you basically stole their land. Hundreds of years before uh, most Eurocentric leaders would say that, he, told, he got kicked out because of that. So he formed this, this um, Rhode Island and, um, and the Puritans, when, when they're, the rules that they had were, you, we wanted, they were called Puritans because they wanted to keep their theology pure and there was no separation of, of church and state. And so the state could enforce everything that they wanted to in someone's life. So if they had uh, Quakers or uh, Baptists or other theological thinkers or Jewish people or Turkish people coming into their, their world, they would try to purge it and keep it pure. Does that make sense? So they'd kick people out. Nope, you're excluded, you're kicked out because you don't ascribe to exactly what we believe. You're kicked out of our colony, like our area. And then um, they would, if people would come back or they'd have like these punishments like where we burn their books because we don't believe their ideas and they're an infection, those ideas, we don't want freedom of thought. And then we, um, if they keep uh, insisting on that, we cut off their ear. They keep insisting on that, we flog them. If they keep insisting on that, we kill them. And Roger Williams was one of the, he was the first leader in America that, that organized government and he said yes to the Quakers and to, the, uh, to people of Jewish background, Turkish background, Native Americans, others. And he said that we can give them equal, uh, equality in, my, in, our, in our land. And the most interesting thing was he hated Quaker theology. He, he had people that came to his colony that he hated what they thought but he believed so strongly that we shouldn't violate people's internal conscience liberty, their liberty of soul. And I grew up in a church where we had people who were allowed, they were given liberty to, you know, be a, um, a Calvinist or a free will Wesleyan. People who believe that everything's determined or uh, everything's freely chosen, and they could belong in the same church. So when I ran into organizations and uh, as we were planting whitewater that were like, no, it has to be one. It was so shocking to me because I, I was used to liberty and liberty around like, we, you know, we had people who believed in um, male headship homes and they, they emphasized leadership as the male's um, primary role in decision-making. And we had people in our church that, that kind of ascribed to that. And we had other people that were more, uh, what would be known as kind of egalitarian or equal leadership roles, and they could exist in the... And, Do you guys believe they can exist in the same place? What kind of liberty do you want given to you within the community? What what liberty are you willing to give to others? That's an important question, isn't it? And we can disagree. We can even defend our positions. But we live in a world and churches are so quick to divide. Just because you disagree doesn't mean you need to divide. If Jesus is at the center, we're moving toward that together. Amen? I've got family members I don't agree with all the time, but I want to give them liberty. I want them to give me liberty. I have family members that have different political views than me. I've got family members that are fighting, you know, from the, you know, the conservatives and fighting, and they're, they're, they're very liberal. When they come together, there's tension. Any of you guys have that? Maybe my family's the only one. We got people who are like, they, they believe uh, in uh, the, the shape of the earth that's different than the way I would believe that this earth is shaped. They're... They believe in more of a flat-ish type of thing of earth. Our mind's more of a round philosophy. But I don't, if I was like strident and like, no, like all doctrine must be exactly pure and Puritan and, and it's this uh, segregated salad family and segregated uh, salad church, then like nobody in my fa- I won't be family with anybody who has that belief about politics or the, earth, the shape of the earth. Or what they believe about evolution. And Jesus didn't say any of those things were the gospel. He lived, he died, and he rose again. And when you put your faith in Jesus, we're all learning. We're all learning. Limits. It's important to understand limits. For things that are like against... The essential, that are anti-essential, that if someone were to, to, to promote, let's say like uh, the opposite of what we're saying here, that Jesus created an, an inclusive community. It doesn't mean he agreed with everybody, but he included and, and, and drew people to himself. Acceptance doesn't equal agreement, but he loved people. Uh, if we had people that were actively promoting uh, racial hatred, that would be a, something we would limit. Um, if someone was, uh, wanted to be a leader, but their primary leadership was that Jesus isn't uh, God and Jesus isn't uh, someone that we should follow, isn't Lord, we, we, you, they could come to our church and we, and we want a dialogue, but we wouldn't have them be a pastor. There'd be a limit. Does that make sense? And we limit sometimes for, uh, here's the difference between ba- barriers and boundaries. Boundaries are for the health of people and health, your health. Barriers are for exclusion. And we want to have boundaries that are healthy, but we don't want to create barriers that people can't come. Like, we want to have diversity of thought. And if there's atheists or agnostics and people who are of other faiths, like, come and dialogue. But from a leadership level, there might be some limits. I limit myself, like, my, I limit myself for my daughter. Like, um, she she does chores slower sometimes than I want her to. She does her math homework slower sometimes. Sometimes I'm wanting Let's go. I got to do my homework. And I could, at this point, like at the level she's at, maybe when she's sixth grade, I won't be able to do it, but I could do her math homework faster. But I limit myself so she can learn how to do math, add, and subtract. Amen? Limits aren't bad. Let me give you one other example of limitation, then we'll we'll close today. Here's my, my daughter, had her birthday, and her whole class made these awesome pictures. So this is like a puppy. There's a, you know, a cage because he's not you know, trained yet. And then I don't know what that picture is. My, my daughter said, that looks like you with glasses and a top knot. <laughs> but uh, they're playing a board game, Candyland happy birthday novella so she was showing me all these and then i came to this one and i was like what is that and i was like is this a witch novella what do they draw for you and, she, and with a rabbit and she goes no it's like you with hair and uh, i thought that was pretty funny but it, reading it says bundy is with Verfair fair in his ville b.a from b.a and i was like novella what are they teaching you in class i started teasing her and we were laughing and she's like dad all my friends, they don't know how to spell and they're still sounding out words. <laughs> and I just love that because it, you know, I think that God looks at our lives and we think we're so right. We think we know what we know. And, but we're so limited, aren't we? And we're, we're so like human. We're like an, like a, us to God is like an ant trying to understand the universe. And uh, many of us are like, we, we don't know how to spell in the kingdom of God quite yet, we're learning. And, um, you know, we, we're, we're not, a, we can't spell, and we're learning how to sound things out. We're learning how to articulate. And I think if we have that humility, it says Christ humbled himself, we're able to hear others, we're not able to insist on our way and our agenda. The last thing is love. Again, I'm trying to be really practical, love. You remember the verse? It says, "Don't um, insist on your own way, your interests. Don't don't try to always have your way. Don't don't try to be do things out of your own vanity, out of selfish ambition. But treat others as if they're better. Treat others as if you are the servant to them. And um, I just wanted to finish with with that thought. Um, and it's probably my mom calling. I asked her to call if I was going long and to." <laughs> Um, Galatians 5 13 says it so well when God called you my dear family he called you to make you free but you mustn't use that freedom as an opportunity to serve your flesh yourself rather you must become what each other's servants through love unity in Christ liberty in Christ limits that Christ would use, and we see him, and then love like Jesus. Love like Jesus, that we learn to serve, we lift others up, and it comes back to the very beginning of what, of this, of this sermon, like to be a salad that's mixed, not segregated, we have to learn to love and to serve people who think differently, act differently, because that's how we become the church God designed for us. So here's what I'd like to For us to practice I know last week we did communion um, but I was kind of upset that I missed it no I'm just kidding Um, we had communion which is remembering Jesus what he did for the world dying on the cross and what I'd like us to do is is to frame communion around unity in diversity and Jesus with these disciples who had never hang out with each other outside of Jesus. One guy who was serving the, the, the government and worked for the government. One guy fought the government. One gal who had been possessed by demons. One guy who was afraid of demons, who's a Pharisee. You know, he's, he's got all these people who would never be together. This rabble of unlikely people who are together because they're centered on who? Jesus. And he says, when he's about to be betrayed, he, he said, hey, when, uh, he gave him the bread and the wine. He says, whenever you eat this, whenever you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Do this to remember what, what, what this is all about, what this community is all about. It's not about what your, your ethnic identity is, where your background is. Your this is about being centered on love and on me. So what I want to invite us to do is to take communion today. And some of you might be like, well, I, I shouldn't take communion. I, I just want to remind us all uh, followers of Jesus didn't have everything figured out. And he, who, was he, who did he invite into communion with his disciples? All these people who are messed up and broken, and even Judas, who betrayed him that night. And so I just want you to know, if you're, ta- if you're turning toward Jesus and, and beginning to follow him, learn about him, th- the table is an invitation to the way of Jesus. Amen? And so I want to invite you as a community, let's celebrate unity and diversity. I'm going to pray while the band comes up. Father, we love you. We're so grateful for you. Um, Would you just help us to have your vision for your church? Lord, to serve one another. So Lord, I pray that we'd be a a, a church of radical belonging, a church that's a mixed salad in in the bowl of the kingdom. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to... uh, See the church as a social revolution, as life together. Help us to see that the church is a place that transcends its differences, that honors differences, that enjoys differences, that is a church that is of both love and truth and justice and a church of reconciliation. Lord, we come to the table remembering why you died and who you died for. In Jesus' name, amen.